0: Greetings, and welcome to the corner of story and game, my imaginary tavern tucked away between the pathways of fiction and the bumpy roads of game design. Today's guest is award-winning short story writer, video game writer and designer, and most recently, tabletop role-playing game designer and writer, Brent Knowles. Brent, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy with your current project. Could you... uh... Just tell us a little bit about your journey in the world of writing and game design.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Thank you, I guess, first of all, for having me um, on your program. Um, Most people know me from my Bioware days. I was a game designer in the early years. I worked on titles such as Baldur's Gate 2, Neverwinter Nights, and Dragon Age Origins. I also helped out on a couple of the other games that the studio made. Um, I was there in the 2000 to 2009 uh period of time so the developmental phase of bioware after that uh i continue writing stories which i've actually always done throughout my life uh, won an award tried writing some novels
0: uh, yeah.
1: bounced around from game companies doing contract work and uh, did a stint at a technical college uh in the city and now i get to focus my creative energies back on my own little project
0: Wow, you've done a lot. So, I mean, there's a lot to cover there really quickly. But short stories, I want to—I kind of want to start there. I've—I'll be honest, I've read most of them. I've had a have strolled through them, and you definitely explore a couple different genres. From like Ragman's vow and digital rights, you're jumping from almost—you uh, got some science fiction, you've got some urban mythology, almost uh, some almost some gaming feeling stuff. But then you're a game and fantasy writer. So,
1: yeah. I am all over the place. Same with my musical tastes. If you ever listen to my playlist, you'd be like, what? And that's how I approach writing. I I read everything, history, fantasy, philosophy. I like a little bit of everything. And I think I experimented a bit with my writing, just trying out different things. I'd read a story or find a new author who I enjoyed. And I was like, hey, can I do a story like that? So, yeah, I don't really feel like I ever put myself in one box. and I tried things. Some of them were outside my comfort zone just to get a feel for different ways of storytelling. Yeah, you've got to
0: try, right? For sure. How did you get into gaming and why? What was your first experience there?
1: I, I think probably a lot like others of my age. My parents brought home a early days game console. Um, I believe in my case, it was a Clico Adam. Oh yeah, which could play the Cuckoo Vision cartridges, but it also had um, utilities and such that you could use. I think that's what I learned how to program BASIC on, oh, wow. as well. Yeah, so it was a it was an early like PC in many ways. Um, they'll use tapes to run programs and store things and stuff. Kind of wish I kept it around. I was looking this morning because trying to remember the name of it, and they are pricey to buy now.
0: Uh, (laughs) I picked up an old television just for nostalgia, and yeah, they're not cheap.
1: Yeah, and we we certainly had an television at one point as well, and then uh, my parents started buying PCs throughout the early days. So I played a wide range of those early console games and then into the wide variety of pc titles that came out same time elementary school i was playing dungeons and dragons i actually didn't know what dungeons and dragons was initially i saw older kids playing it i thought it was just something you made up entirely on your own so i built my own real system and maps and so we played my version of dungeons and dragons for a while until i realized it's actually a book you buy <laughs> and and that's how you actually play it so did that over the years um kind of bounced between running campaigns and playing video games as that kind of both
0: mediums evolved I, that's a common threat dungeons and dragons being a starting point for so many people especially us older you know <laughs> originals yes. um and yeah we i went through the same process where the whole satanic panic thing caught on and my parents were very religious so they got a hold of my uh-huh. books my old first editions and burnt them and I wasn't allowed to buy more, so I had to recreate the systems for me and my brother to play, and then I tweaked and adjusted as we went along, and I got rid of the old Thacko way before they got rid of it. Uh, good idea. <laughs> what games stick out from your childhood when it comes to the those roots?
1: Yeah, that is a tough one, because there was a wide variety that I played throughout the years. Probably the Quest series are the the most concrete ones I can point to, the space quest and king's quest yeah we played probably most of them and it was often like one of us would buy one of them when we play it all together as a group and then go to somebody else's house else and play the other title uh also got into the wing commander series oh yeah. Uh, yeah and certainly the ultima games those were i don't think i played the first few but i, I played the the other later ones that came around and they just felt like Dungeons and Dragons in many ways and that was my benchmark for what I enjoyed at the time usually Mm -hmm. and it allowed me to experience that without having the entire group together and run through the campaign and I found the storytelling remarkable and the gameplay elements I'm sure I remember them more fondly than they actually play out
0: (laughs) but um, they are remembered very fondly. It it seems like Back then, we were trying to replace the tabletop experience with something electronic, so you could still slip away to those fantasy worlds, even though you didn't have friends around or didn't have time. So that that's, yeah, a shared experience for sure. So does that still inform your storytelling today?
1: I don't tend to
0: think about my influences actively, but I'm sure
1: everything I experienced right, growing up has... I'm sure other people could look at it and go, oh, you could tell that he played Ultima because of the thing he added over here. So, yeah. it certainly guides me in some unconscious ways along with everything I've read and played and watched and, mm-hmm, and even
0: sure. the campaigns I ran um, while in high school. It all goes into the creative cauldron and out stuff comes.
1: Yeah and then maybe sometimes a person should be aware of when they are using
0: it and <laughs> using it again and again and again but yeah. <laughs> a little self-awareness helps too. Yes. Um, so what was the first game where the storytelling and the writing actually jumped out at you, you like you stopped and said Okay, there's there's wordplay going on or character development or an arc here that stands out.
1: That's a tough one. Though I am a writer, I don't necessarily gravitate to the written, heavily written games. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I, again, bounce all over the place and I can surprise myself by which game attracts my attention. Back in the day, I really liked the writing on the, the Quest series games, many of them. Uh, Colonel's Bequest, I think, is what it was called, was they're more mystery-oriented. Mm-hmm thing i found the stories there entertaining and i think that was my first exposure to little trickles of vo every once in a while and music right we grew up in a very audio deprived landscape initially <laughs> yeah because <laughs> they took up so much room right yeah. on the on the media and that i started to experience um and then they did a couple other um series not in the quest um i don't remember all the names of them but their storytelling evolved and the, the sierra group was really Really talented bunch of writers, Um, to be honest. I think we were spoiled in some ways by those games. Uh, Other studios focused entirely on gameplay, for example. And and many of those games were amazing. But the story story was light. Uh, The Ultimate Games also had good story, or at least good characters, or at least I remember the characters really strongly. I like games where you do have party members, and those party members have their own, feel like they have agendas, backgrounds, um, lives outside of running around with you. And those stories that evolve i find actually more the most entertaining than necessarily that great uh critical
0: path story what is the uh what's the first big cinematic scene and this is kind of a strange one but what's the first one that really jumped out at you
1: yeah again it was a small trickle of audio i remember and it would surprise anybody growing up nowadays but to actually hear somebody speak a voice line the first time that happened to me, I was like, what? I do think it was monks chanting in one of the games I played. I was like, that's impossible. How did they do that? Um, and then Wing Commander started doing more of it. Uh, and that I think I bought a new computer just to play Wing Commander um, and I had to buy a special sound card. Oh, wow. To be able to get um, voiceover. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was honestly uh, the slow emergence for me. It was a sense of wonder constantly. Um, and I do agree, everybody's just kind of like expecting a triple A Hollywood movie every time they play a game. And I don't think it has as much effect on them as it, well, I could be wrong, but as it did on me going from this desert of nothing to, wow, games can actually do all of these things. Um, there are oddball ga- not oddball games, games off on the sidelines of what I normally play that I tend to remember more. Uh, I think it was MechWarter 2 had a series of cinematics. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have the number wrong. Um, but though I found those moving because it was like a family story going on in the background, and your choices in gameplay were affecting the outcomes of the cinematics. Oh, wow. Um, I should probably dig dig into it and, and yeah. look back on it. But I, I, some of those scenes um, I definitely remember. But I tend <laughs> to, BioWare, I was known as the not fan of a cinematic sky. Uh <laughs> though on Neverwinter Nights that's when we first started doing cutscenes mm-hmm. for the expansion packs. We had right. a system to handle cutscenes there, which was not our plan ever. Um and then Horde's eventually became single player only right to accommodate uh the use of cutscenes. Right. And then even on Dragon Age Origins we built our own cutscene tool like uh, to do cinematics. So I recognize it was important and it's what people want it. Even today I still tend to skip skip cutscenes really? um certainly on a replay. Um uh, I'll go through dialogue and make choices and really pay attention to the party members, but I, I don't, um,
0: yeah, I, I can't say I, I, I fall in love with cinematic scenes the way I think a lot of others do. Is it because you prefer to be an active participant in the story that's being told or created as opposed to a passive observer? Absolutely. I'm playing the game to make choices
1: <laughs> and guide things. Right. Um, and I think the writers who can handle that nonlinear storytelling are, are fantastic because they give me the sense I've just experienced an amazing story that I participated in. Right. And not all writers can do that. I, I'm not great at it. That's why I didn't do a lot of writing at Bioware and I saw novelists not make it past our auditioning at Bioware. Um, It's it's, it's hard. It's very hard (laughs) to tell that story. Well,
0: this is the theme of this podcast. This is the thing I really want to talk to professionals like yourself about is similarities and the differences between writing comic books or novels or standard fiction versus interactive storytelling, live storytelling, group storytelling.
1: Yeah, no, it's a nuance that isn't always obvious to folks because there's a lot of great video games that are linear and they are told much like you would write a novel and they are fantastic. Right. But I'm more impressed when it's the games that I made choices either in the gameplay Mm -hmm. or in the dialogue or hopefully both that feel like, they might not always actually, but they feel like my influence on the world was large um, and that my choices matter and that maybe I did something clever. And I always like to think that did something clever that the designers didn't expect and it did something which I know is impossible because they had to anticipate it for it to actually have an effect. But yeah, I guess it's that traveling to another world. Is what I'm trying to get out of the out of the game. Right. Um, instead of just being on a, a railroad through somebody else's world, mm-hmm. I'm I'm making changes. And I appreciate all types of games. And the games I finished have often been the linear games with the great story um that I've got um hooked into. But um I I can spend endless hours in an RTS game, for example, even though it has a very light story, just because I
0: feel like I'm making all the choices and yeah. I'm developing the world. It well when it comes to sandbox games which is another thing entirely there's the ability for people to spontaneously organically create their own stories with their friends that have nothing to do with what was hard-coded into the story like i can jump in minecraft and play with my son and we could come up with a story we're telling tomorrow about how we had to fight these spiders to get out of a cave that we accidentally fell into and mom will sit there and roll her eyes but we created a story together that had nothing to do with the game writing so that's a whole separate wonderful no absolutely i have lots of fond experiences playing minecraft with my kids
1: and those co-created stories whether it's you with your kids or me with a game designer uh, that we've co-created for me those can stick strongly can be really moving experiences i believe years ago i wrote a blog post about guilt in video games how guilt can be a motivator um i killed a horse in skyrim accidentally by riding recklessly um, and I was really emotionally attached to the moment and to the story, I couldn't even tell you what else was happening. In the main beats of the story at that time. it was just like, <laughs> I can't believe I finally earned a horse, got a horse, and rode recklessly down a hill and <laughs> and it didn't survive. Uh, and that's the story I told to myself, right like I, I made up in my
0: mind as I was playing. Did the horse have a name?
1: <laughs> I, it didn't actually have I, it have at the
0: time, but I don't remember the name. It could be in the blog post. I should go look. okay. So let's move into talking about your career, your career path. You've been fortunate enough to work for Bioware uh, as well as Beamdog. Can you tell me a story or about your creative process or just share a little bit about Bioware and Beamdog, what it was like working for those Edmonton studios? I suspect most of my Bioware stories have been told already
1: or exist out there. But for those who maybe don't know, uh, it is very Alberta. Based all of the original owners and developers, it was their first game most of them had made. I knew about Bioware because I was going to college in Grand Prairie, right? And there was a classmate named Cameron, who, in my memory, I remember him not staying for final exams, but maybe he did. But I remember he was hopping into a station wagon or something and driving down with a bunch of friends to go work at this video game company called Bioware. And he was a very talented programmer. He was certainly outshining all of us in the program in Grand Prairie. Um, and I was just like, okay, wow. And yeah, so he had it down there. And then a few years later, I finished my degree at the University of Alberta in, in Edmonton. And I went looking for jobs and I saw Bioware in the list and I remembered it. And that's kind of how I got into Bioware is because I remember Cameron going there and the company was still around a couple of years later, even though I thought he was crazy <laughs> for doing that. And uh, knowing him, I, I'm sure helped help you know get me an interview or helped after the interview process. But that first uh, the interview, I was obviously nervous. It was like my I was doing a lot of interviewing to try to get my first job in some kind of career after getting my computer science degree. And I was all dressed up and nervous, and everybody was so casual. Greg Zeschuk, uh, one of the, the co-founders, was just like wearing shorts. And I think he was barefoot, and it was like. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, and then just over the years, it was an amazing team. Yeah. You, you kind of get to hang around with a whole bunch of very creative people. Um, oftentimes you disagree with them on ideas, but we're all very, well, mostly respectful of one another and it had a college atmosphere often. Right. So I know crunch time is uh, kind of a horrible industry practice, but at the time we were often just staying late cause it was fun. We were putting cool things into the game So yeah, just overall pretty fond memories. Uh, I know at at, at moments there was certain stress at the time, but looking back, it was yeah a lot of fun, a lot of really cool people to work with. And then over at um, Beamdog, again, different because I I knew many of the people, but there were new people, um, including people whose first video games were some of the last video games I had worked on, which aged me quite a bit when I realized that. Um, Dragon Age Origins, I think, especially was kind of a, a first game for several of the staff at Being So I was uh, working with a much longer or uh, a much younger crew of folks there. Uh, one neat highlight is I got to work on the Access and Allied video game there, and that including included talking to um, Larry Harris, who invented the original board game. Right. So I had a few calls with him, which was just kind of cool to you know chat with somebody who spent his lifetime making games. I think he's made hundreds of games or something. So he's just, I don't certain something to aspire towards, right? Mm-hmm. Just spending your entire life getting to do these creative
0: endeavors. Back when you're working at a BioWare on Neverwinter Nights, they came up with the Aurora engine, which allowed the community to create some of the very first community-created content for a video game. Uh, which is exciting for those of us playing and aspiring to be writers because it actually became part of the application process at some point for BioWare. Um, Did you have any chance to interact with that yourself? What did you think of that engine and what came out of it and the creation of the content?
1: Definitely. The tool set was an amazing auditioning tool. Uh, It, yeah, it just brought us, you know, connected us with the aspiring designers out there who now could get their hands on a relatively easy to use tool and put their stories to life. So I did go through many of the modules folks created. I can't say I was playing it for fun. Always super busy. My time at Bioware, I didn't get a lot of time to play games just for fun, but saw a lot of amazing talent out there and we recruited a lot of that talent. Right on. Uh, Did interviews uh, and brought them on and, uh, in my head, I have certain waves, like hiring waves, right? There was a few waves of hiring prior to me. Then there was my wave, and there was a bunch of us who kind of came in at that time. And then this was the Neverwinter wave, when which went on for a few years and formed the core design team for a lot of Bioware's feature games. And many of them came out of the community um in the, de- in the design department specifically. And many of them are still with Bioware right now or working at a wide variety of other video game companies. So it was their gateway into... The larger industry so that was yeah pretty fascinating part of the tool and then there was uh tangential things that happened with the tool people wrote research papers using it people created simulated worlds of different historical moments in our wow. history there were online servers replicating like the 1800s in the united states there were there's an, a guy in denmark i think who flew over because he did his doctorate or whatever on AI using Neverwinter Nights as a modeling tool. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Book. I have it up on a shelf. So that reminded me as I was coming down to do the call, it's just, oh yeah, there's that guy. Uh, he sent us cookies or something to thank <laughs> us for the, for the time. Um, and he was doing learning AI in the Neverwinter Nights script, scripting language. So oh. just very long tail. And of course, right. Like we use that tool as the underpinning for several games, as did other video game companies.
0: That's incredible that so much came out of that too. I I didn't know that. I thought it was just a way for us to create modules and and add-ons and a modding community almost. But that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, and all. And I still every once in a while I get the occasional email with somebody who's using it for something, especially with the enhanced edition giving it new legs. Right. Um, and I've used it myself as a prototyping tool for some of my consulting work. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm really glad we went to the extent we did on the flexibility of the scripting language, for example. Mm -hmm. There were battles certainly fought on, do you actually need to do that? And I'm like, yes, we do need to do that. Uh, Do you need math? Do you really need math? I'm like, yes, we need math. Uh, Because on the Baldur's Gate series, we didn't have math in the scripting language for that game. So when you did stronghold plots and there were different factors affecting the amount of money you earned on stronghold, that was a series of ifs. Oh, wow. Nested ifs. And there was no X plus Y in that scripting language. (laughs) It was really hard to do math. So, yeah, math was a fundamental. And then all the other features. And the enhanced edition keeps on adding new features. So, I don't know if you've ever fired it up in the last two or three years. No, it's been
0: 10 years. A lot more with it now. Wow. I'm going to have to go do that after this. (laughs) So you were actually quite heavily involved in the original tool set. Absolutely. I know a lot of people refer to me as a writer. I
1: didn't do a ton of writing. I did become a lead designer and creative director over time, but I think my strength was on the technical side, not as a programmer, which I didn't do very much of. I think I did. I I was allowed to do one commit on Neverwinter Nights in the actual code base, but in terms of assessing a process and trying to come up with a better way to allow designers to do more fun things. So even on Baldur's Gate, there was no um, tool for the designers to use to write the logic scripts. We used Notepad and external compiler. So I wrote an ID so that we had a, an integrated compiler and syntax highlighting. So I developed kind of an early tool there. I sat in the same office as Mark Dara who was the lead programmer in Boulders Gate. So I got to like poke my head up a lot and say, hey, could you add this to this tool or create this tool? I'm sure he loved that time and time again. <laughs> and then on Neverwinter Nights, yeah, really involved in the workflow of the tools, what they needed to do. And occasionally I'd be brought on to other teams to audit their designer workflow process. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a scripting language. I didn't do any of the work to make it happen, but I was the annoying designer saying, we need this and we need this and we need this and we need this, and the programmers had
0: to go do that while you're at beam dog you correct me if i'm wrong you got to work on planescape torment correct i did yeah that's a project with a very rich history what was it like working on something with such a rich background from various platforms came to you with a strong design document from the video game company that worked on it before but what was that experience like it was certainly an interesting experience when i
1: joined beam dog i didn't want to work on any infinity engine games. The interesting side of that was the wadding community knows a lot more than I do about how to make games for it, which surprises them every time I spoke to any of them, I was like, you've been working on this for 15 years. I spent eight months <laughs> on this right. engine. You're all way better at it <laughs> than I am. Uh but they did need help on Planescape, which I had actually not played. Oh I tried it out and I loved the combat system in Baldur's Gate 2, and I felt Planescape's implementation of it wasn't up to snuff. Uh, A lot of what I did on Baldur's Gate 2 was adding a lot of the tactical boss battles, putting in a lot of the different spell use, so it had a reason to to be used in in combat. So I had a hard time getting into Planescape despite the the amazing storytelling. So I'm really grateful that I got to work on the Enhanced Edition because I finally played the game. (laughs) And I played it many times, and I explored a lot of the alternate routes because part of my job was making sure we caught every UI and they had a few sneaky user interfaces. I oh, yeah. only had one or two uses in the entire game. Um, and so short of me playing through it multiple times, um, there's certain things that I'm sure quality assurance would have caught it eventually, but we caught it early enough that we could build proper screens for it. There's a couple of magic items that have uh, multiple ways of interacting with them. And a couple of custom screens. I couldn't like three years ago, I could have told you the name of the items. Yeah. I can't remember now, but at the time it was like, one was caught quite late. Actually. It was like, what is this? I found a new UI. Uh-oh. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was really neat. And I I got to, like, engage in, in the source material and talk to a few of the, you know, the, the original people participating in it and, and whatnot. So uh, I got to kind of dive into an aspect of that game engine uh that again that one was also used for very many games right Right. uh that i I never really got to and yeah the story was fantastic and the party members are amazing um so kind of kicked myself for maybe not playing it back in the day but uh, i do think the enhanced edition version is a lot more robust and enjoyable than than trying to play the previous version we did a lot of quality of life improvement to it did you ever play the tabletop Planescape material? I had one or two of the source books. I primarily played in my own homegrown campaigns. So mm-hmm. I never even really uh, experienced the Forgotten Realms very much before I came to Bioware. Mm-hmm. That was kind of new to me. Uh, the only campaign world I played significantly would have been the Dragonlance campaign. That, that was something we had all the source material for, and we ran a long-running campaign in it throughout high school. Um, and then the other ones I just read for for entertainment.
0: So
1: I didn't ever really engage with Planescape or even Dark Sun.
0: Well, that makes a good segue talking about your homebrewed world. And, you know, every DM's dream is to bring their homebrewed world to print. And here you are living it now with your successful Kickstarter of Raiders of the Serpent Sea. So why don't you uh, throw the campaign pitch at me? What's the hook? What what is Raiders of the Serpent Sea?
1: It is a... uh fantasy campaign for the fifth edition of the world's grades role-playing game heavily inspired by north mythology and then pop culture uh interpretations of north mythology and viking culture Mm -hmm. so again much like we did at bioware many times you grab an ip you kind of look at what resonates most strong what people expect out of it right Uh, we we did that with the star wars ip when when knights of the old republic uh was created i kind of did the same thing what do people like about Vikings? What North mythology stories of Thor and Loki, which ones do folks like the most kind of highlighted, which, which of those were the most important and, and went from there and then merged it with aspects of a couple homegrown worlds. I had, you know, created throughout the years. So it is exciting. Running a Kickstarter, very daunting, very exhausting. I had advice going into it. But nothing really prepared me for how all-consuming that month was. That was really long hours. I felt like you know, I was working back in the video game industry. Um, is exciting, though, constantly mm-hmm. engaging with the backers and filling in holes, you know, things I might have not handled correctly initially. And I had to go update documents and come up with new incentives and all that. So, I, I, you know, yeah, it's exciting, exhausting. The process right now is interesting because I'm running a business. Uh, it's a one person business, but it is yeah. a, it is, it is a business, yep. you know, dealing with accounting and taxes and all these other things that I knew would take some time, but I've severely underestimated how much time, wish I yep. could hire somebody to to help out, but you know, I'm learning a whole bunch of different aspects <laughs> um, and the, probably the most exciting part in anybody, you know, who has their own home campaign, the part they probably appreciate the most is the art. Mm-hmm. So being able to have thousands of dollars, and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to spend to have these amazing artists yeah. take my writing blurb and turn it into a map or a monster or a portrait uh, is re- really incredible. Uh, I, I I review art every day because there's we're we're still working in it. Uh, again, way more time consuming than I anticipated. I never thought like I would lose days to just writing art blurbs and reviewing art, but it is really neat to see my ideas, you know, made into an image and then vice versa, the, you know, some of my map ideas were really dumb and the map artists nicely informed me of how those <laughs> were not going to work and the plots get made better, right? From that back and forth. Yeah, I don't yeah. have a full team, right? So I don't get that energy or whatever of, of all these different opinions and stuff to help. So the artists help a little bit with that, you know, a monster gets a tail like I didn't really imagine. And now it's going to fight
0: differently. That's the, That's the strength of having a team. Where did you source your cartographer and your art people? And All of the initial artists came from
1: the folks at Odyssey of the Dragon Lords. Right, Yeah. So they've allowed me to share their brand, um, Ar- Arcanum Worlds, yep. to build uh, Raiders of the Serpent Sea. So all of the core artists were the same artists who worked on that product. Because all of those artists are busier now. Um, mm-hmm. I have also had to bring on additional artists that I found either through, through art station or through recommendations from oh, um, other folks I've met over the years. So I'm using a portrait artist, uh, Tom Ventra. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. He's done work on the Pathfinder
0: Oh yeah. yeah. Um,
1: books, some, some of the art, and those books are his. And he's done some portraits and environments for me. I have a full credit list and I'll probably do a few more blog posts about the artists, but uh, there's a, canadian on the east coast who actually just emailed me and he's oh, nice. been doing fantastic art um for me i initially was like oh i think i'm pretty good but then I was like i looked at my schedule and went, <laughs> uh, yeah i could use additional help on some of the environment pieces so yeah a mix of that i even um I'm, I'm not going to announce announce it yet. i'm going to wait until the piece is done but i have a former co-worker from my time in the video game industry is doing one piece of art for one of oh, the ministers nice. for us so i'll probably do a little piece about that and that that is complete so a little bit of the existing talent and a little bit of
0: hunting for her, for her other artists. Nice, you've drawn inspiration from Norse mythology to create the world of Grimner. Am I right? Yeah, Gr- Gr- Grimner. Yeah, and, and I've noticed you've started twe- you've tweaked some things, such as the Odin character is now a female, which is fantastic. What informs your decisions on what to keep, what to get rid, what to change? Where do you draw those lines? Well, the neat thing about doing the book by myself is I just get to make all the
1: calls and I'm responsible and I get all the credit, right? Um, so I use my gut in some degree. Like Odyssey of the Dragon Lords is not Greek mythology, right? It's yep. not, there's no Zeus in in Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, but there are characters who will remind you of Zeus. Exactly. Or of the the heroes that same idea. There will be characters who will remind you of Thor. There'll be characters who will remind you of some of the important characters in the Vikings television series as well. Oh. Uh, and so I tried to make sure those roles were represented. And again, I just, I use my own instinct. Who has the most popular stories told about them? Are Odin and Thor and Loki. Mm-hmm. So those three certainly have a strong influence on the world. Uh, a few of the minor characters that I like the stories about, those will have roles to different extent yeah. likewise the sagas right i've pulled pieces that resonated with me out um and, and put them in as a subplot here or as a uh, a world theme here so yeah me mixing and matching i compare myself against vikings or last kingdom or other uh, shows to see what those writers thought was important mm-hmm. as well and we disagree sometimes and sometimes i'm like oh no you know maybe that aspect is important um to people and they want to see it I troll the Discord forums, I and, and Reddit and other hints too. And, you know, there are a few times that people said they better include this. And I'm like, mm. okay, I'll make a note of it. <laughs> make sure I include that. I am constrained by page count, and of course. Odyssey, the Dragon Lords is a huge book. Raiders will come in a little bit under it um, because printing books at that. Uh size is problematic. Yeah. I'll probably have more additional digital content to nice. fill out the. The rough edges i tend to overwrite too i put more detail in more more explaining so balancing that to give room to the game master running their own campaign i'll Mm -hmm. probably end up pulling some stuff out uh both to hit my page targets and to you know i don't have to explain everything in perfect detail there is room um for the players and the the game master to create their own story as they go
0: that is a delicate part of creating for tabletop role-playing games is leaving enough space for somebody to create them as well. So it becomes that partnership. A- absolutely. And yeah, trying to balance it, I'll probably
1: have some diagrams, things that didn't really exist in Odyssey to show my intended plot flow check, checklist. So you know that this important encounter has to run after this other encounter um, and, and use less words that way. Just, just have a few uh, reference maps through the, the narrative structure.
0: That almost feels like a, a video game designer tool that you're pulling yes. in yeah and that's certainly something I did often and I do like if I'm consulting
1: on a video game I'll often uh, turn everything into a flowchart or something mm-hmm. so I can better talk about um, aspects of uh, of the development process and, and look at them all together so yeah
0: I, I'm an organizer. But at the end of the day, an interactive story is really just a flow chart. Yes. It, yeah, it really absolutely. is.
1: Absolutely. And even with Odyssey the Dragon Wars, which I'm running that campaign, I've been running it for over two years um, with uh, a D&D group that consists actually of my uh, teenage children and their friends. Oh, nice. Um, you know, there were a few times where I was like, oh, I forgot to do that. Right. I forgot to do that really cool thing. It I wasn't like front and center. I was in a different chapter. Right. So I, yeah. I want to make sure I have... All of that stuff easy for the the game master
0: to uh, tackle. Nice, yeah. Dragon Lord is actually on my list to to run through the group after I'm done what I'm doing now. So
1: yeah, it is really fun, and I really recommend checking out the Discord for it. There's a uh, a large Discord community, and I will they do that. they've added like alternate maps and other aspects of it, which um, you know make it more fun.
0: Oh yeah, no, for sure. Um, did you play Pathfinder at all? I
1: have looked at the books at times, but I yeah I've never played Pathfinder. I did have a friend of mine who I actually played Dungeons and Dragons with in high school. We went over for lunch a few months ago, and he was trying to get me to like do a a Pathfinder version though, right of, of Raiders. And I'm like
0: oh. down the road maybe because that's what he he went from D and D into into Pathfinder. They have. Um... They're long modules. What are they called? Adventure paths. And there's one called um, Kingmaker. And it's extremely complex adventure path. It it has both your traditional exploration and, and dungeon delving, but it also has kingdom building in it. And there's a community built around creating modified content for it and additional content. And it's massive. Like, you could probably play a Kingmaker campaign with all this extra content for like five years. Like there's so much to it that they've added. It's incredible. And you know, you've done something good, right? When communities like that grow on top of your stuff. So you've you've written the Lazy Designer series and uh, it it covers all aspects on game design skills as well as other practical advice. Um, But out of it, the question that I had in the back of my mind when I was going through this is, in your opinion, how important is it for somebody who wants to become a designer or a writer? How important is it that they have programming skills, Right.
1: Yeah, I've been asked that many times over (laughs) the years. It's tough. If you just want to write, you're just going to do the narrative. Having some idea of how programming works will help you accomplish what you'd like to do. Right. Um, But you don't need to have that super robust and grounded knowledge of programming. However, what you ultimately want to do is work in the video game industry and you don't have to just be a writer, right? Like, because that's a narrow field and there are not an infinite number of positions. Right. If you want to be in the game industry, I would really recommend even some light programming skills. Um, I often recommend, though, just go get your degree you mm-hmm. <laughs> will get you a job in another industry that will pay well if your aspirations don't work out. But that programming degree will get you into the design department. It can get you into the art department. If you have art skills to complement it, it can get you into quality assurance. It can get you into production. Um and then you get to work in a video game uh at a video game studio. And if you're also a very good narrative writer, and you're willing to learn, right? You'll be able to move into that, into that role. So it it certainly doesn't hurt if you have the the mind for it. And I think most people have the mind like programming is is a skill
0: that you can learn that is very solid advice and that's my pitch <laughs> to go get a programming degree my son comes home from school and says so how do I get into program or into video games i'll say programming yeah
1: it, it's your best unless you're an amazing artist but again you have to put even more time into learning all the tools right to to get that art path path yeah. into the
0: industry you mentioned that you spent some time working at a tech college up in Edmonton, helping them with their AR VR project or division or.
1: Yeah. I was pretty unfamiliar with how, you know, an academic institution uh, worked, but I wanted to do something a bit different. Always like to learn new things. So there's an opportunity to help lead a, a research facility at uh, Nate, which is a, a technical college um, in Edmonton. And the job description is very similar to being a lead designer or a, a project director in the video game industry. So they, uh, as you probably know, but maybe not everybody listening knows, may, uh teach us uh, digital skills. Um, that's one of their offerings. They have a lot of other industries that they uh, help to digi- train, but they also train digital artists and designers and programmers. So it made sense for them to have a, a research facility that was also utilizing those same skills. So we would hire students. Um, we'd also hire other professionals. Part of it would be training the students for what working in the industry would be like. Um, and this was, yeah, primarily software development, uh, mostly um, augmented reality and virtual reality um, projects. So we got to buy lots of cool t- toys and try the mode and do various projects. And then we created pitches industry so we were trying to attract industry clients who uh would you know pay to work with us um get funding so i learned the funding landscape um a little bit how that worked which is all new to me how you how you write grants and and all that kind of stuff and we put together a a few projects we put some of our own like so we got so it's the first time i actually ever got paid to do my own thing right so we would just kind of brainstorm and come up with what we thought would be a good pitch so that we could go bring to people and show hey here's what we could do we did machine learning projects as well combination of visual and machine learning we had a i had a co-worker who came from the film industry so he was into special effects and, and whatnot so so a wide variety of things um did a few virtual reality projects a few ar projects and uh Built a motion capture studio, motion and performance capture studio, which is now in the hands of someone way more capable than me because I had no idea what I was doing. But I learned (laughs) how to take funding and uh, build a space on Nate. So there's a dedicated 2000 square foot room in a new building on the campus at Nate where you can go in and there's a very robust uh, Vicon uh, motion capture system in place. Um, And I put up a lot of the cameras. Uh, So I did a lot of the hands on to get it working, especially because COVID arose during that time period, and it was tricky, but we managed a construction project, which I've never done before in my life, um, and then managed, yeah, this whole installation, and then hiring a, a a person to actually run the studio, and he comes from the the film special effects industry as well, and he, I've checked in with him a while ago, and it sounds like things are going really well. Yeah. They're, they're getting clients, and,
0: and nice. doing motion and performance capture. A mocap uh, studio at Edmonton, that is cool. Yeah, and it's suitable for, um,
1: you know, three, four, probably even more folks and props and everything. So it's kind of crazy that that's there sitting on the campus. So, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I, I know nowadays they have suits that allow you to do one person motion capture, which is great. Right. But yeah, if you want to start coordinating and fight scenes and, and stuff right. like that, right, you, you go to the, the, the larger studio.
0: There really is a lot of potential in Alberta when it comes to, game design entertainment industry stuff like there's always been film stuff in calgary but i think there's an untapped pool of talent and passion and interest that bubbles beneath the stuff that when you hear alberta you think energy you think agriculture but i think there's enough of us that we could take over
1: (laughs) oh i i agree and uh certainly if you speak to some of the folks at beam dog right they've been advocating for a long time about changing that landscape to um you know create more opportunities because there is a large a group of creative folk who either spun out of Bioware or were attached to it or um, the University of Alberta used to have a partnership with Bioware I don't know if they still do and that created a lot of folks interested in video games and some of them have created their own companies and former Bioware people have created their own companies there are right. several spin-off companies in the city, not just Beam dog at this point in time. Um, and then there's lots of students, you know, who attend Nate and they yeah. want to be part of a video game yeah. company and their students coming from the U of A. So yeah, there is a huge community out there. Um, and there's always been a thriving writing community. Um, I don't know if a lot of folks know, um, but like OnSpec magazine has been around for decades and it's one of like the longest running science fiction fantasy magazines. Um, and it's been a showcase for many um, first time authors or, or early authors who then went on to publish in, you know, other magazines around the world. So a lot of creative people yeah, in this yeah. province for sure.
0: And a plug for OnSpec. I've been an OnSpec subscriber for god 15 years i don't That's know a awesome. long time and yeah there's so many talented writers and and they pull in writers from all over the place but the Alberta writers they're uh, close to home
1: <laughs> yeah no I, no absolutely and it's just very exciting that they've been able to put that magazine out for so many years right it's yeah. uh, a labor of love for them
0: well i think i am going to thank you for your time mr Knowles. this has been fantastic yeah no, i, I really appreciate the opportunity it's always fun to talk about the
1: past i find as i get older i i forget more and more of those so Uh,
0: not focusing on the past let's remember raiders of the serpent sea is coming out that's true a person can still get in there and buy a copy and uh, even though the kickstarter is over you can still oh yeah absolutely the the pre-order site is up and there you go uh if you want to save shipping
1: and you live in the edmonton area i will also deliver it which was one of the added bonuses
0: for those folks who select that option is i'll meet them somewhere in edmonton if people are looking to follow you online, where can they find you?
1: The easiest thing is probably uh, the blog.brentnolls.com okay. site. Um, I brand everything with my name. So <laughs> if you look for Brent Nulls, uh that's the site that's probably the easiest way to to, to tackle me. Um, I'm on Twitter as well. I think I have the Brent Nolls handle or a... <laughs> facsimile of so. Sure. Yeah. I've been <laughs> on there for so long So, um, but yeah and I hope this kind of grows for you as well so well, it's always you. exciting to start a new endeavor and and launch yeah. it so um, maybe down the road when Ragers is done too if you want me to come back on for a follow up I'd be cool with doing that when life isn't so um
0: that was my <laughs> next <busy>. question actually <laughs> <laughs> hey are you still here? I would offer to buy you another drink and tell another story, but it's time to be heading out. So, Thank you for spending time with us today, be sure to stop by again, and remember, there is always a seat for you by the fire at the corner of story and game.